Welcome to the Three Tomatoes Happy Hour, and we do love happy hour and the clinking of glasses and cheers to all you fabulous women who are fully living your lives at every age and every stage. And here's the best news, every hour is happy hour. So whether you clink cheers with your coffee mug or your afternoon cappuccino, remember as the song says, it's five o'clock somewhere. Join us for some grown-up fun, interesting and stimulating conversations that will motivate, inspire, or just make you laugh. And for more grown-up fun, visit our website, The Three Tomatoes, and the three is spelled out, and sign up for our newsletters. Now sit back and relax and enjoy the episode. Greetings, tomatoes, and welcome to another episode of The Three Tomatoes Happy Hour Podcast. I'm Kim Selby, your host today, and the editor of the San Francisco edition of the Three Tomatoes newsletter. Ooh, today's esteemed guest is Dr. Michael Stephen, and he has written a very timely book called Breathtaking, The Power, Fragility, and Future of Our Extraordinary Lungs. Now, of course, in order to write such a book, you know his credentials and accomplishments are vast. And of course, he is an accomplished academic, researcher, and clinician in pulmonary medicine. He has led numerous clinical trials and has been on the front line caring for COVID-19 patients. And yes, he has recovered from the virus himself. He has studied in so many places and given his gifts to so many people all over the world. And I want to get right into this so we can discuss the importance of lungs and how they are overlooked in our life today and how important they have become, especially since COVID-19. So welcome, Dr. Stephen, and thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Kim, and thanks for that warm introduction. Really <laughs> appreciate this opportunity to, to talk about the lungs that have been my life's work, um, you know, bringing a healthy breath to people something I'm extremely passionate about, and I appreciate the opportunity to bring it to a wider audience. Good. Well, I did have the opportunity to read this book, and I found it so intriguing because you you give us some really hardcore facts, and you go back in history to the importance of when, uh, I guess I want to say, uh, when TB was the first, was that the first lung disease that was really focused on well, certainly, I mean, I think TB has been, you're correct in everything you say, TB has been with us, I think, you know, since the, we emerged in the East African Plains. So it's been with, with humanity since the beginning and it's traveled with us wherever we've gone. Um, and it certainly killed so many people, sort of one out of three deaths in, in 19th century America and Europe were from tuberculosis that, that as lung doctors, that's sort of where we got our start. Um, you know, heart doctors got started with maybe cardiac catheterization and kidney doctors maybe with dialysis a little later, but lung, all lung doctors in the beginning were tuberculosis doctors. And what prompted you to go into the study of pulmonary medicine or the lungs? Was there something that you found fascinating about it when you were in med school or is it something you'd always gravitated towards? A little bit of everything. And, you know, I think our own motivations are sometimes hard to pinpoint um, and that's kind of what I like about life, actually. But I was always very interested in, in endurance sports growing up, um, going running. I would go running with my father from a very young age and kind of notice my breath and notice when my effort was flagging. 
that it was the breath that was short. And then certainly in medical school and in residency, it, it took a little bit of a more technical term. Um, I think the intensive care unit attracts a lot of lung doctors. So lungs and the ICU are, are a joint fellowship in the United States. And um, it's very fast paced. Patients are very sick. You have the pleasure of, and hopefully the pleasure of pulling patients back from, from a very steep cliff. And certainly we've seen that a lot with COVID-19, but there are stressors with it as well. But certainly that's what attracted me to the field um, was the intensive care unit. And then later, um, I sort of got more involved in, in pulmonary and critical care medicine um, in, in general. And now you deal a lot with cystic fibrosis patients. Is that primarily your focus now? It's, it's, it's a big academic focus of mine. Um, and I'd say it takes up about 20 to 25% of my practice. Um, there's about you know 100 adult cystic fibrosis centers in the country. So these are specialized centers where pretty much all CF patients about 35,000 in the United States go to get their care. They will not go to a general pulmonologist or a general doctor. They will get themselves to one of these um, specialized care, which are supported by the CF Foundation. So we just have a ton more resources. Um, takes a village to take care of these people. So I do do a lot of cystic fibrosis work, correct? Well, I just thought that was an interesting uh, chapter in your book, because I have known people who have had children with cystic fibrosis, and that's not really the focus of what I want to focus on, but I do think that that's important and eye-opening for people. And some of the stories you tell throughout the book, and I, I just want our listeners to know that you really bring it home by introducing stories of people and how they have dealt with their various lung issues and how doctors have assisted them. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about the book is when you talk about these patients, and to me, this is important, you talk about the patient-doctor interaction. And sometimes you have to look at that patient and look at, it's not a cookie cutter. There's no cookie cutter treatment. And I value the creativity of doctors. We were talking about this a little before we started recording, but it's not just a doctor saying, okay, here's a medicine. You have to really look at that person and be creative as to how to assist them. And I appreciate that you talk about that. And is that something that you find often when you're dealing with these patients with their uh, you know, lung diseases or lung issues? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, and and you you have a lot of points there. I just want to unpack a couple of them. You know, medicine has become more of a shared responsibility over the past couple of decades, and even in the last 10, 10 years, that patients um, they want um, a doctor who listens to them. Um, they want a more of a shared responsibility, and you know, the days of you know, showing up to a doctor's office, listening to them, doctor talk for 10 minutes, and then you going home and taking your medicine and seeing them in six months, that's long gone. So we're in communication with our patients a lot more. If you want to be a successful doctor, um, you have to listen to what your patients are trying to tell you, and you absolutely have to tailor your plan um, to, to their needs. Um, it's, it's all about getting them to buy in to what you think their vision for is, but then it's, you know, you're going to be navigating two agendas here. Sometimes the most aggressive treatments aren't for a single patient. And if you can get them to buy into, you know, even 25 or 30% of what you're saying in terms of taking medicines, taking inhalers, getting exercise, if you can even get them to buy into 30%, then you've done a 
tremendous job and then maybe you work on something the next time. Um, and so you develop this relationship and it, it takes years um, and it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of listening on your part. Um, you, you know, 99% of what's going on in their lives is not happening in front of you. And you have to figure out and tune into that. What are their stressors? What are their work stressors? What are their family stressors? What can I fit into this patient's life that is reasonable? Because if you overload a patient, they're just not going to come back and see you. Um, it's a shared agenda. Um, it's learning each other's styles. It's learning what, what they're capable of and what they can handle. Um, and you have to constantly adjust that, no question. Well, thank you. And I know that's a little bit off topic of the actual book about breathtaking and the importance of breath. Talk to me a little bit about, you say that we take an average of seven and a half million breaths in a year. That's a lot. That's a lot of breaths. And, and it seems so vital. We take it for granted, don't we? We take, in, until there's a focus on our lungs, we, we take them for granted. Yeah, we absolutely do, Kim. And it didn't used to be like this. So you go back into the literature thousands of years and you look in the Bible, um, the Old Testament, the New Testament, um, we talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, that is basically the breath of life. We talk about prana in, in Eastern medicine um, and yoga and uh, the Buddha talked about the breath. So this was something that we were aware of thousands of years ago and its importance made its way into our rituals. Um, burning incense and chanting and doing meditation made its way into our most holy scriptures. It made its way through East, West, every single culture in the world. And then there was a switch. At some point um, in Western society, we lost track of the breath and we took it for, for, for granted. And it's been very devastating, its consequences in terms of lung health. Um, we've seen a vast decline in lung health in the past you know, 50 years. And it's time we start paying more attention to the breath and no better time and no better wake up call than, than the virus that we've seen this year. Well, um, and some would say that this wake up call was so necessary for so many reasons. And you address some of that in your book about your chapter on mindfulness, which I appreciate as a yogi. I, I just love how you've covered every aspect of the lungs in this book. I can't tell people enough how eye-opening it was for me. And yet I knew intrinsically, of, of course, I know I understand the calming effects of breath. You talk about the rate of depression, which is so high now and how really through simply breathing and being conscious of our breath and deep breathing, we can, we can aid and assist ourselves out of depression. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an accelerator in life. You know, there's things that we get stressed out about in life and, and that's pretty much an unconscious effect. And it builds up in our body and we feel it in our shoulders and it, and it transmits to our breath. We begin breathing very much sort of with our upper shoulders and instead of with our diaphragm as we get older. And you can, you can see this very clearly happening. Look at a child breathe or look at a child breathing and you just see their stomach you see their stomach expanding naturally. And then as we get older, we put all this stress up in, into our shoulders. And, um, you know, one thing I actually think, you know, drugs and alcohol do is they help us calm our breath actually. So they calm our mind, but then we feel this kind of tension release in our shoulders. And I think we kind of naturally um, calm our breath, but we want to do it naturally. We don't, we don't want to use drugs and alcohol. <laughs> right. Um, You're not advocating everybody not go out. <laughs> um, and, and getting in touch, we do have, so 
getting back to a little bit of what I was saying, you know, there's an accelerator, there's the sympathetic system, there's adrenaline, and we don't have a ton of control over turning that on. We can't, we do have a brake system. So that's, that's the parasympathetic nervous system. That's our rest and digest. Um, and the vagus nerve innervates our diaphragm uh, incredibly, and that, that regulates our parasympathetic system. So when we expand that diaphragm, when we take easy deep breaths, when we get good oxygen and carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide exchange, that turns on our vagus nerve. Our vagus nerve feeds back to our brains, and that turns on dopamine, serotonin, prolactin. These are the good, feel-good hormones that we all know and, and love. Um, you know, what Prozac does with a pill, I think we can do a lot with our diaphragm, with our breathing, um, with effective breaths. And, you know, the, the amount of data that is building up in terms of, of effective breaths, in terms of asthma, in terms of COPD, and then even depression, anxiety, um, PTSD, the, the data is there. Well, obviously the breath is so important and people don't often, I don't think the, you know, the vast majority of people think about the breath and lungs. Do, do you know what I mean? We think about a breath. I don't think we're focusing on our lungs when we do that. But that's just a little commentary. But you also talk about our planet and what's going on in with the toxins or is and why we're seeing so many more cases of asthma because we are, aren't we seeing more cases of asthma now? Oh, no question. Um you know, we're, we have 5 million more people in the United States with asthma in 2017 compared to 2001. Oh. Incidence of asthma in 1980 was 3%. Uh, it's up over 8% now. So almost a 300% increase. And I dare you to go out and find somebody who, who you're not very close to, who hasn't had a child suffer with asthma, has a nebulizer at home, has, has issues with, with their breath. Well, I personally know that because my son had asthma and at age seven was at a friend's house and the dust got into his lungs and his mom called and said, your son's having trouble breathing. We are at the hospital immediately. He was in the hospital, you know, several times for asthma. So this is very close to my heart. I, I it is the scariest thing to see your child unable to take breaths. Yeah. And I had it recently described to me as, you know, mom, I'm in a place where I feel like nobody can help me. And, you know, that's a very scary, scary place to be, to have your airways. It's a suffocation is what asthma is. It's your, your airways clamping down, your muscles swelling, inflammatory cells pouring in there. Um, but so the environment now is caused, like, I, are some people just born with a predilection towards uh, asthma and allergies creating that? Absolutely. There's, there's absolutely a, a genetic and familial component to asthma, but we are seeing a lot more of it these days. Um, a little bit probably goes back to the global greening effect that we're seeing. So there's 20% more vegetation on the planet now with the increased CO2 levels. Plants use CO2 in, in photosynthesis. So they're pulling out all this CO2 and doing what they can with it and producing a lot more pollen with more vegetation. Our winters are getting shorter. So a lot of those um, dusts and, and uh, noxious elements aren't freezing over the winter. And then our air quality is just getting worse in, in terms of smoke and wildfire. So the American Lung Association estimated in 2017, there were 125 million uh, Americans exposed to unsafe levels of air. 
and that's increased to 150 million or 45.6% of our population in the United States is not breathing WHO standards of, of air quality. And a lot of that is from wildfires. Um, and so people out West are certainly experiencing a decline in air quality. And a lot of that's going back to wildfires. So I think between you know, things that are happening with our environment in terms of allergies and wildfires, um, and that's sort of just just all building up and creating this this asthma crisis that we're seeing. Yeah, of course, we all want to know what we can do to help. Well, I live in California. I'm very aware of the wildfires and the effect on our breath because during COVID over the summer, we weren't we couldn't go outside because COVID. Well, we we did. We always walked, but because the air quality was so poor, it's a really frightening frightening thing, and I don't know how to assist other than by cutting down on waste, you know, paper, you know, recycling and all of that, but it is really scary out there. So we have to take care of our lungs. Yeah, no question. And California has been the leader in a lot of environmental issues. And, you know, they're coming out where, you know, gas cars are going to be phased out in the not too distant future. Um, people listen to it. Um, and it's not a political issue in California because it's affecting everybody. Um, and it seems like the vast majority of people in California are really in tuned. And California has been an environmental leader in this country over decades. Um, so they're a leader in terms of uh, renewable energy, um, in terms of conversion from, from gas to electric. They have a lot of problems though with, with poor air. Um, the mountains in Los Angeles certainly hurt things a lot. They do not let the smog out. So Los Angeles is a bowl and um, you know, toxins can just sit over the city for days and weeks. Um, and I mentioned one study in my book sort of where they follow track pollution and lung function in children. And as the air got cleaner between sort of 1990 and 2010, uh, you could see that children's lung function grew um, proportionally to the decline in, in air quality. So there's a lot that's been done in California um, and it's been shown to be effective. And you know that lung function will just serve them better as their brains are able to grow, grow bigger, they can live longer, lower increased risk of, of Alzheimer's. Mm, very um, important. So. so lung has a connection to Alzheimer's. Lung. No, well, lung pollution, yes. Lung pollution, um, that's what I meant. Lung pollution and, and lung function. Um, so there seems to be a pretty clear link between development of Alzheimer's um, and degree of lung function decline. Um, some of that seems to be very clearly tied into, tied into pollution's effects. Um, osteoporosis, that was a study out of Columbia University, also affects, you know, certainly much higher incidence in women. Um, and so um, women, unfortunately, may bear the brunt of a lot of these lung issues. You know, on average, their lungs are smaller, but they're breathing in the same level of toxins. Um, and so COPD, say, from, from smoking, traditionally women have smoked less. Um, they've caught up over the years, um, but COPD incidence in, in women is about 50% higher for the same amount of smoking that they do. Um, so, you know, the uh, children certainly bear the brunt of this too, because certainly their lungs are smaller for the proportion of inhalation, um, women, and then and then elderly. So a lot of this falls on on populations at risk. That's frightening, actually. Do you think that when everything was shut down for a few months, 
I mean, literally shut down. I know we go in and out of shutdowns all over the country, but at the beginning, I really noticed how clear after a few weeks and a month where the cars were not traveling, very beginning in March and April, how clear it was. Do you think that helped us just that short amount of time without smog? You know, that's that's a really interesting. So I think there's a couple points to make here. And I think, yes, it's going to be a little hard to study. Um, there are two incidences that I mentioned in the book. There was a copper melter strike in Utah for about a year in the 1980s. And um, and they watched the sort of the asthma incidents, you know, drop to less than 30% during that year of the strike in that area. So children's admissions to hospitals really plummeted during the strike. Um, and then there was another strike in the 60s um, in the sort of uh, Las Vegas area of another uh, mill that, that created fumes, and they showed uh, mortality drop two and a half percent in the area during, during this time and because of that strike. So sometimes a little less work is um, good for our lung health, unfortunately. You know, so I think, you know, a few months could help. I don't know how much it's going to help. Um, I think it just proved a couple of really neat points. Number one is the ecosystem of the earth can heal. It has this tremendous capacity to heal. And if we just give it a break and work towards um, our goals, um, we can see the miracles that can occur almost. You know, we saw the air clear. You looked out and saw the air clear after just a few weeks of decreased pollution levels. So that the earth um, and our atmosphere has this incredible ability to heal. And it kind of gave us a little bit of a window into saying we can get there and the earth will heal itself very quickly if we, you know, can, can lower these pollution levels. Uh, it's not a hopeless situation. Our lungs will heal, heal our earth will heal. Um, this is, we can do this. And we kind of showed to, to us that we can do it through this shutdown. Um, that is so such encouraging news. One of the many, 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 many lessons that we are learning through this time. And of course, we have to talk about it. You know, the elephant in the room, the elephant in the world, <laughs> COVID-19. Now, I know that books take quite a long time to write. So I assume that you have been writing this book prior to COVID-19, or did you just do it, you know, when it happened? No, this started, this effort started back sort of in 2015. Yeah. Um, and I, it actually came... I'd read a couple of recent books, which I was very impressed with. Um, one was called The Emperor of All Maladies um, by Siddhartha Mukherjee. And he sort of wrote a biography of cancer that was a beautifully written book. And I was very impressed with it. And I wrote, I read it back then. I said, you know, somebody really needs to do this for, for lung medicine. Um, and so I started back with this idea around 2015. And, um, and it's certainly taken me a while to to get things going and get things out there. But I will mention, you know, it, it does seem to be unfortunately prescient um, with, with first, you know, there was a, um, we had the electronic cigarette um, issues that we had a couple years ago and then the wildfires came and now there's been just a huge interest in the breath. Um, for a while I was tracking on the online, on the front page of the New York Times, um, you know, they were talking about advanced techniques we use in the intensive care unit to rescue people's breaths and never in my wildest dreams would I think that that would have happened within my lifetime. So the lungs have a moment here. Um, and, um, you know, my book was started 
quite a number of years ago. Um, but I think you know people are going to be receptive to these ideas, and and bringing lung health to a wider audience was always my goal. Oh, that is so special. I, I knew that it had to have been written, had started because there is so much detail in here and so much history, and it is fascinating. And I, I want to talk about COVID, but I really want to promote this book. I mean, I'm not here to be a salesperson. I'm here to inform people. But what's so intriguing, I just. I found it so interesting the way you talk about going back to the tuberculosis and the start of it. You know, Edvard Munch, whose uh, paintings portrayed, they, there was a lot of art that portrayed how it was TB, right? That they were talking about that his sister lost her life to it and how you have shown us that there's so many examples of how important the lungs are in our lives, that they have been depicted in art, that they are, you know, just vital to our existence and we take it for granted. But back to COVID-19. <laughs> so you had it, you? Yes, yes. So uh, my, yeah, my journey sort of started um, back in April and, um, you know, we're about 90 miles away from New York City. And so we heard things were very, very bad up there. And Philadelphia escaped the worst of it where I am, but certainly I've never experienced anything like that in, in a hospital before. I've been, you know, training in hospitals for 25 years now. And just, you know, for the first time in our lives in the hospital, um, we were at great personal risk. Um, and as a physician, I sort of have the highest ability and the easiest ability to control my environment. Whereas nurses, um, nurses, helpers, environmental workers, they're all in there for a 12 hour shift. Um, so I sort of felt like I was watching the modern day soldiers of D-Day and they were keeping society together um, while things almost fell apart. And so we were right on the precipice um, at the hospital level. And certainly I think in New York, they fell over the precipice a little bit, which is heartbreaking to, to hear about. But in Philadelphia, you know, there was, there was an acknowledgement that there was great personal risk there. And so I got through a couple of months of taking care of COVID patients. We were kind of flying blind. Um, there was tremendous tension in the hospital and everybody just kept it together. Nurses put up signs, kind of giving you hedge hugs, I remember reading. And normally I would sort of dismiss that kind of whimsy, but, but during that time you look at it, you absorb it, um, you know, this too shall pass. You know, a biblical phrase was, was all over the hospital and we really joined together and, and to get through it. Um, in, in um, unfortunately, you know, uh, at, towards the end of May, I came home and got a very, very high fever um, and was quite sick for two weeks and ended up in the hospital with, with blood clots um, and a pneumonia. Ooh. And, you know, um, it was a good experience for me to be on the other side of the stethoscope. I had one physician say, how, how does it feel to be on the other end? I said, well, not too good, I said with a smile. But, but you know, it was a good experience for me to, to see that, you know, the hospital didn't judge me. You know, I felt guilty. I felt guilty about bringing it home. I gave it to my wife and children and um, that, you know, gave me incredible guilt. They got through it well and kind of showed me there is mercy in the world that, you know, not every mistake is punished to the extremes. And um, it felt like sin, you know, some, for some reason, illness can feel like sin at times. And I, and I knew, you know, at some point I took my mask off or ate a sandwich when I shouldn't have. Um, and can't blame myself, but you know, those were feelings that I had to work through. But I got taken in by the hospital, it showed no judgment. 
Um, I healed in a few days. I went home and um, took me another three, four weeks. And then, then I was back at it. Um, and it gave me some humility. It gave me a different perspective that was, that was very, very useful to me. I use my story sometimes to motivate my patients. I say, hey, listen, it took me six weeks to get better. We're not, you're not going to get better in a day or two. And then that patient says to me, you know, doc, that was exactly what I needed to hear to get going with physical therapy. I'm not going to get better in a day. You didn't get better in a day. You're a doctor. You know, we like to think of our doctors sometimes as a little bit closer to the divine. You know, how are they going to heal me if they don't have a little extra knowledge? Um, and so, you know, for me to get knocked down um, was, was a learning experience for me, a lesson in humility. Um, and, you know, now I'm back at it treating, unfortunately, more COVID patients. Um, but the feeling of fear and anxiety and extreme stress in the hospital has, has gone. Um, and we feel under control. There's still a tremendous amount of suffering going on. Um, we see that we feel like we have a couple of good medicines in dexamethasone and remdesivir. We're using them. We feel like not, not everybody's falling off a cliff and, and things are much more under control. And, um, you know, I know everybody's just been banding together to do their best with, with public health measures. Um, so well, that's, that's a little a, bit about my journey. No, and that's a wonderful way to end it, end our uh, time together because it's interesting when you say you felt guilty because I, I can understand that. But I also, it, you have nothing to feel guilty for. You are out there protecting people and helping people. Of course, you're exposed to it so much more than the average person who can stay in their home. But it's such a good lesson to everybody listening. Wear your masks, wash your hands, don't go out if you don't have to. I mean, basically. Is there anything, uh, before we wrap up, is there anything we can do to strengthen our lungs or help protect ourselves in this time in particular? You know, so for, for COVID, you know, I think, you know, I was listening to a talk by Anthony Fauci and he was very encouraging saying, you know, we don't need to shut down our whole economy. If we stick to four or five basic principles, wear a mask when you're indoors, wash your hands, get tested very quickly. If you can, you know, if you have symptoms, um, and you know, use some common sense about travel. And if we did those things more broadly, um, we'd be in much, much better shape than we are now. Um, so I think his message, you know, public health is not, you know, an incredibly exciting topic. Um, it's stick to very basic things. And the sum of those parts, if everybody does it individually, will add up to something massive. Um, in terms of strengthening lungs, um, you know, you know, breathing exercises are always good. Um, keeping a healthy weight, you know, a weight on the abdomen really pushes up on your diaphragm and pushes up on your lungs. So a strong abdomen and losing just five pounds, you know, don't try to get down to necessarily your ultimate weight. Concentrate on five pounds and just that, ex you know, five pounds will take a tremendous amount of pressure off your lungs. Um, I think we need to do more in society in terms of monitoring pollution and putting pollution levels out there. That, that we need to have better pollution maps and having people more in tune to what is going on in our atmosphere um, at the level of pollution. Um, and you know that's something that needs to be tackled on a society level. So I think there's a lot we can do individually, um, individually for us to protect ourselves from COVID. And then you know things need to also happen on a larger scale. Yeah, that I think that's very valuable. First of all, I really think that the breathing exercises help strengthen our lungs. I know that. I love that. And also, 
everybody feels like, oh, well, well, not everybody, but some people feel like, well, what can I do to protect the environment? You know, what can I do? But it is so important, just some of the statistics that you have brought out today and in your book about the change in how much more asthma is is in our world today and how much the toxins are in our environment. So I think that, you know, everybody needs to really try and do their part because we want to breathe. Our lungs are so important. And I thank you for bringing that to light in this book. Thank you, Kim. It's really been a, been a pleasure speaking with you and have a great day. Thank you. I just want to remind everybody it's called breathtaking. And I love that name. I, I love that name. It's breathtaking. I love it. The power, fragility, and future of our extraordinary lungs. Thank you, Dr. Stephen, for writing this and for being our guest here.